Last Sunday, we moved into the body of the letter where Paul addressed the divisive attitudes that were present in the church. And what he's going to do next is he's going to identify one, if not the reason behind the divisions. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Simply put, many of the Corinthian Christians have reverted back to thinking about life from the perspective of the world. This is incredibly applicable to all of us because we all have disagreements with each other. There's always conflict of some kind, big and small, between, between people. And so whether this is a division in the, in the church or it's at work, it's at home, it's between you and another person, it has everything to do with that. God does not want us to be divided, especially among believers. And divided among lost folks, we want to make sure that we're not the ones who did that. We're not the offending party. And we've done everything we possibly can to make those amends so that communication is there. Um, you know, we're the best thing that's ever happened to a lost person. And if we do something to sever that communication, whether they did or you did, who cares? But when that communication is lost, that avenue between you to them with God working through you is, is closed. And so divisions are very important for us to pay attention to because all of us experience them or participate in them at different times in our lives. And secondly, all of us from time to time fall back into the pattern about thinking about life from the perspective of the world, embracing the values of the world and the attitude and just interpreting things, putting on that lens where we see things from that perspective, the way we used to see things. And so Christians have this problem, and this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, the section is a bit long. It is uh, in chapter 1, it begins in verse 17, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 2. And in this section, although what we are talking about is the underlying reason for the divisions in the Corinthian church, although that is what we're actually talking about, at no point in this entire section does Paul just come right out and explicitly state, this is the reason. He doesn't do that. He's not going to do that until chapter 3. And so while we are studying this, we want to keep that in mind that Paul is talking about a problem within the church. And it can get lost in the shuffle because so much about what we're going to be reading here is a contrast between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. And so if we just concentrate on that, we can forget that what Paul's talking about is the church, Christians, have fallen into a place where they are interpreting life with world, the world's wisdom. So this is very important for us to remember. Now, uh, like I said, this is a big section. It goes from verse 17 in chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2. And we will read it in, in parts here this morning, hopefully. Uh, but if I could summarize what's going to be said, it is, uh, this is like really big. This is really huge. It's something that all Christians really need to get a grasp of, uh, what Paul's going to be talking about here. And that is that what Paul's getting ready to tell us is that the gospel 
doesn't make any sense to a lost person. When a lost person hears the gospel, they just automatically reject it because it, it, doesn't, it defies common sense. It's very important for us to remember. Uh, Paul does not talk about people in this section as being lost or fallen. He calls them the natural man. In chapter 2, verse 14, he, he compares the natural man with the spiritual man. And the natural man is a lost person. And they don't realize that they're lost because from their perspective, they are embracing everything that's available to them. All of the fine arts, all of the educational systems, the experiences of their peers. Uh, they're informed about the world and the news. They may even be very religious. But the natural man functions on a horizontal plane and they lack spiritual discernment. It doesn't mean that they're not religious because many uh, lost folks are religious. But if you think about what they do is they uh, take advantage of their wisdom, what wisdom is available to them, and they use that and apply it to their decision-making. Why wouldn't they? And that translates over into how to get to heaven or what's going to happen to me when I die? What's the best options I have? And so the natural man is going to decide that uh, he's basically good at the core. You know, I'm not that bad of a person. I might have made a lot of mistakes, but I'm not that bad of a person. And it's possible, if God really does exist, it's possible for me to attain his favor. That's what makes sense to the natural man. What the natural man does not have is access to the truth. He is cut off from it. He is uh, deaf, dumb, and blind. This is very important for us to understand because when we present the gospel to them, they listen to the merits of what's being said and they reject it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any common sense. As a matter of fact, it's offensive because you're telling them that they're not good. You're telling them that they can't attain salvation on their own. You're telling them that their wisdom, the way they see things and think, is wrong. And so they're automatically going to reject the gospel. It's automatic. A, a good example I thought about was how people watch like the ghost hunters in the haunted houses and they go visit the haunted houses and they walk around the cameras and a door will shut, you know. Um, but uh, let's, let's just say that there is some kind of natural phenomena. It's not you know, a, a, a trick or, you know, something just to keep ratings up. Let's say something supernatural does occur in one of those instances. How is that interpreted by a natural man? That's, that's a, a person who's died who hasn't went on to their next life because they want you to find out who killed them. Yeah. Or it was an alien abduction. And so the, they can recognize that something's happening but they don't have the answers. Christians realize that when a person dies, they go someplace else. They're not roaming the earth trying to solve their murder. And Christians know that angels serve God, but a certain number of them rebelled. And we know that those are demons. They're real. Christians have spiritual discernment. It's something that the world does not have. And all you have to do is watch people talk about a seance or ghost hunters or the ghost whisperer or whatever and you can see that they are clueless. 
They can't connect the dots. And if you explain it to them, they may even be able to cognitively grasp what you're talking about. You know, the Princeton professors, the Harvard professors are on the Discovery Channel talking about Adam and Eve and Jesus and the flood and demons. They may be able to spit that back out, but they don't believe it. It's just stuff they know in their mind. It's not stuff that's in their heart. They don't actually believe it. They don't believe the Bible is God's Word. It's not authoritative over them. It's not inerrant. And so Paul is talking about how the natural man does not accept the Gospel. It is foolishness to him. Um, The plan of salvation does not make sense. It's automatically rejected. You know, the, the mere fact that someone actually believes the Gospel testifies to a miracle. It testifies to the fact that God intervened in a person's life and rescued him. The mere fact. And so those of us here who have received Christ as our Savior, we really have. We've really been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He's indwelling us. That's a miracle. I remember years ago, Bill Maher was talking about Christianity. It was been many years ago. But I'll never forget when he said it, but... Uh, he was rejecting Christianity as being utter foolishness. And if you hear what I'm going to quote him, but you know when you, when you hear what he said, you can tell that he paid attention to what somebody was explaining to him about Christianity, and he was following it logically. He kind of messes it up, but he's trying to follow it logically, and he's thinking about it, and he puts it in the computer, and it comes back out as stupid, foolish. This is not something that a normal, intelligent person should believe. He said, God had a son. And he sent his son on a suicide mission. But he said, son, don't worry. They can't really kill you because you're me. Bill Maher. So let's begin reading in in chapter 1, verse 17. And we're going to stop at verse 25. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is God's power. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not, go, did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who would believe through the foolishness of the message preached. God, in verse 21, look at that. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. So they're saying that it's foolish, and now he's referring to it as foolish. Verse 22, for the Greeks, for the Jews ask for a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. I was going to put that up so you could see the entire passage. There you go. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Beginning in verse 17, this is a a hinge verse. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
but to evangelize. Uh, and not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. And so this is a hinge verse because uh, the first half of the verse closes out what he's been talking about previously. You'll remember he was talking about the divisions, and I thank God that, that I did not baptize. You remember that? And so it closes out with the beginning. It, the beginning of the verse closes out what he was talking about, and now it introduces this entire next section. You know, uh, some things sell themselves. There's no need for advertisement. You know, a hot dog at a, a baseball game. Um, uh, candles and flashlights when the power goes out. Fans in the summer. And ice scrapers in the winter. They don't have to advertise those things. And so you would think that when God designed the gospel, he would make it in such a way that it was an easy sell. That when someone heard it, they would automatically raise their hand, I'll take two, please. But he did just the opposite. He has presented the gospel to a lost world in a fashion that the lost world rejects it. If Jesus was an advertiser, you would fire him. Because he's selling a product that everyone automatically rejects. Your nature automatically rejects the gospel. This is so important for us as Christians to understand because we are around people who are thinking differently than we are. They have a different value system. They don't see it the same way. God did not design the plan of salvation in such a way so that it would just shut up everybody into lostness. That's not what's happening there. Instead, we need to recognize that God did not take his wisdom and turn it into the world's wisdom to present the cross so that lost people would embrace the cross. He didn't do that. God stayed true to himself. His wisdom, which is higher than all wisdom, it's, it makes all of the sense in the world to God, and that's really all that matters. And so God has presented his wisdom to the lost world. That's why the gospel is offensive. And like I said, a lost person would never ever believe the gospel. He would never do that. So the fact that people actually believe in Jesus testifies to a miracle. If a Christian is going to be proud, they can only boast in the Lord. If one will boast, boast in the Lord. Because we have to recognize who we were, where we were at, and that God began to woo us with the Holy Spirit. And He began to use different things in our life, our circumstances, people. And eventually, He brought us to Himself. He called us an effectual calling that was successful. Um, in, in, the, in the context of ancient Greece, they prided themselves on, on persuasive rhetoric and philosophy. In, in ancient Greece, in the, in, the, in, the, in the known world at the time, the educated, uh, they saw barbarians. Only, the only people who would not appreciate their wisdom was barbarians. And for the church to be presenting something to them that was ridiculous, put them down there at that bar. You know, they were, they were foolish. 
well-meaning people, you know. They're nice folks, but boy, are they misguided. It's just foolish. And so what Paul is saying here is that when I preached the gospel, I did not use clever words to sell the gospel. He didn't spend all of his time trying to make the gospel relevant. It is a, a church's desire to grow. It is a church's desire to reach more people. And if it's not going fast enough for us, we can be tempted to make the cross more relevant. And you see this in a lot of churches. They're doing different things to appeal to the lost. And that's not necessarily bad. But if at some point the cross just kind of falls out of the picture and we're all talking about how God wants you to have a good life and to be successful. He doesn't want you to be depressed. Here's what you can do about your anxiety. And this becomes the focus. Positive thinking type stuff. It empties the cross of its effect. And this is what Paul's saying. I didn't do that. And in verse 19, there's a quote there. It's from Isaiah 29:14. And uh, if you want to read that, it's in 2 Kings 18 and 19. If you want to read the backstory for that little quote. But it is a situation where Israel used worldly wisdom. And they thought that it was a good idea to form an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. And you can see what's happening there. And so uh, since you and I are not just like experts in the Old Testament, when we read Isaiah, we just don't automatically know what it's talking about. Folks, uh, the Jewish folks did. And so it's really neat that this, this quote has this backstory. And so it's a very illustrative. We could spend our entire morning talking about this brief illustration here in verse 19. How God's people can decide to use the world's wisdom to get, their, to get themselves through different situations and decisions that they have to make. You know, how, how bad it is for us to have been rescued and to actually have spiritual understanding and spiritual discernment and then decide that we're going to put the lens back on where we see the world down here in, with a lost, futile perspective. This is what the church in Corinth was doing, and this was the problem. Um, I remember a few weeks ago when our study on parenting, uh, this man was talking about his kids and how they would work overtime to try to pre prepare their children for all the different kinds of things that they have to experience in life, and especially things that are going to happen to them when they're not there. And so, you know, the ice cream truck comes, and... What are you going to do? What are you going to do, honey? Because this child had a, an allergic reaction to peanuts. So they wanted to make sure that when they bought the ice cream, it did not have any peanuts. And they drilled this into their child's head over and over and over again. And the ice cream truck comes. And so it's time for the little kid to run out and get the ice cream. And mom stops and says, hey, wait a minute. What are you going to do if the man in the ice cream truck asks you, asks you to step inside the truck with him? What are you going to do there? And the child says, mom. I'm going to make sure the ice cream doesn't have any peanuts. <laughs> so you can see that the child had some things going, but completely missed the point. And so this is the situation for the natural man. They're using their wisdom. It looks like it makes perfect sense to them, but they don't get it. This is the problem that they have. And so uh, it goes on here to say that the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom there in verse 22. 
And the Jews gave very little attention or value to speculative thought. You know, it was kind of worthless to them for, to have this circular reasoning where you never arrive at any, any definitive conclusions. It's all just philosophy. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. You know, and let's hear the latest guy and his latest idea. But they enjoyed that. And they prided themselves over it. So to the Jewish people, that was ridiculous. They, that was a waste of time. They wanted facts. They knew that when God showed up, it was mighty and powerful, and there was no mistaking it whatsoever. And so for the Messiah to get nailed to a cross by the Romans, the Messiah, that was just ridiculous. Jesus is obviously not the Messiah. didn't make any sense. And so to the Jewish people, the majority that didn't receive Christ, the majority, they missed the greatest sign of all. And the Greeks missed the most profound wisdom that they'd ever been exposed to. This graffiti here, uh, is in Rome. It's kind of well known. This is uh, inscribed on a wall in a house. And I'm going to try to read the name of this house. It's called Domas Galatiana. So let's try to say that. Domas Galatiana. Anyway, it's a house. And uh, there's a, the city of Rome has about seven hills. And the centermost hill of the city is called the Palatine Hill. And there's all kinds of houses on this hill. Um, this particular house overlooked the circus, you know, Circus Maximus. And at one point, uh, Caligula used it as his imperial palace. So this is a very fancy, beautiful place. It has collapsed now. Uh, and it wasn't even discovered until 1857. But on the wall in this room is this picture of a, of a Christian being crucified. And uh, instead of a normal head, he has the, the head of a donkey. And so the idea is, is that you would have to be very stupid to be a Christian. The words underneath it are Alexa Menos. So that's the man's name that's being crucified as a Christian. We'll get to meet him someday. That's all we have to look at right now, but we will get to meet him someday. But the words underneath are hard to read there, but it says, Alexa Menas worships his God. Let's begin reading in verse 26. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things to shame the wise, and God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so we might bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But from him you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in that order. As it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. This, of course, in verse 31, there is the central thought in this entire passage. So first of all, Paul tells us that the gospel itself is foolish. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the central thought 
And then secondly, now he tells us that the church is foolish too. The people in the church are foolish. They are not powerful or of noble birth there in verse 26. They are weak, verse 27. And verse 28 says they are insignificant, despised, and viewed as nothing. In other words, God didn't choose the celebrities of Corinth. The wise philosophers and the leaders and the celebrities and famous athletes. If he did, what would have happened? The whole city had been in the church, but for the wrong reasons. He did choose some. There in verse 26, it says, Not many of you are. So some were. And so when the world looks at us, uh, they don't see people of noble birth. They see us as insignificant, unremarkable people. And this is why people say things about Christianity, that it's a religion, uh, it's a crutch for weak people. I remember when I repented, I went to a lot of people that I had been friends with, and I would share my faith and tell them what had happened to me. And I remember one person said to me, well, I just think that religion is a crutch for weak people. And that person was right, because I am weak, despised, insignificant, and viewed as nothing. Why did God do it that way? Now here's the thing. If you take all of the celebrities and you put them into the church, and then there's divisions, it kind of goes with the territory. But when you fill the church up with unimportant, unremarkable people, and they begin to think back the way they used to, they forget about who they are in Christ and what God's wisdom means and how it should be applied to everyday decisions when you have a room full of unimportant people and they begin to think about life from the world's perspective, then very quickly, different people are going to promote themselves. And even in a room full of unremarkable people, you end up with divisions. And that is exactly what's happening in the church of Corinth. It reminds me of a revolution where... uh, the, the poor overthrow the rich and they get them down in the gutter and they shoot them all. And the oppressors die, but the, the oppressed become the new oppressors. And so this is exactly what was happening in the church. It's a travesty. It's the, the opposite of what God wants to see in his, his little local churches. where He's got this little candlestick and he's walking around and he's evaluating it. And, uh, this is God's pride and joy, this little church. He loves us so much. He's so happy about what we're doing and trying to reach a community. So we want to keep it clean. Stay on focus. So what this passage so far has done is it's told us that the message of the cross is foolish and that the people are foolish. And finally, Paul is getting ready to tell us that the way he preaches is foolish. It's void of brilliance. Uh, It's the brilliance of speech or wisdom. So that the only thing one can do is boast in the Lord. You know, God is like, you remember when you would play kickball or something in school and you'd all stand there and the, the two best kickball players would be the team captains and they'd get to pick. You know, and you'd be standing there hoping that you weren't the last one picked. And uh, God did it the exact opposite when it comes to picking kickball. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and feared and much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This is the kicker. What Paul did is he presented the gospel in a simple, straightforward manner, and he depended upon the power of God to convert the souls. It says here, a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I don't know if you can say that, but I can say that when I got saved, it was a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. Especially the people who used to know me. I know my wife can say the same thing. But the good news is that this should take a load off of our shoulders when we share our faith. We don't have to be wise. We don't have to have all the answers. Just present the gospel. Let God do the rest. You understand what He did for you on the cross and what He can do for them. That's all you have to explain. Let's finish our reading. Uh, no, we're not. We're going to read a few more verses. Let's start in verse 6. It says, However, among the mature, that's Christians, however, among the mature, we do speak a wisdom, but not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery which God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew it, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what has never come into a man's heart is what God has prepared for those who love him. So Paul's talking about Christians there. and He's, he's talking about how the wisdom, God's wisdom that we possess, it doesn't mean, let's just be honest about it, it doesn't mean that we're always operating with God's wisdom, but it means we have access to it. And the last section here is going to explain to us exactly how that's true. But he wants us to realize that this fact that we have spiritual discernment, that we have been born again, regenerated, is an incredible gift. It's a present that God gave to us, and it's a present that God predestined for us a long, long time ago. From the foundations of the world, He picked us. The idea is that God decided He was going to build a house. And He figured out where He wanted the bathrooms and the living rooms and the fire pit. And He drew out the plans in His mind. That's the house that God foreknows. And then he predestines the house and he begins to set that plan into motion. He buys the building materials. He lays the foundation. He hires the construction crew. What God has done is he has chosen to use us to help him build his house. Christians. We're the ones who bring the gospel. And if we decide that we don't want to do the job, that's okay because God will bypass us or bypass you or me and go to somebody else who will say yes. But He's going to get it done because God is going to fulfill His good pleasure. 
in chapter 1, verse 27, God has chosen, He did, God chose what is foolish. In verse 27, God has chosen what is weak. In verse 28, God has chosen what is insignificant. Back up a little bit, verse 21, God was pleased, it pleased Him to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Acts chapter 16. I'm just going to read this. You can look at it if you want. But we've got more to read there in the chapters, a few more verses. But in Acts chapter 16, we remember when Paul was in Asia Minor and he saw the man of Macedonia and said, come over, and, come over to us. And so Paul travels across. He co- travels from Troas into Western Europe. And he's in ancient Greece. He's in the northern part of Greece. He's in Macedonia. And he comes to a city called Philippi. And he's there for a number of days, and they heard that there was a place of prayer down by the river on the Sabbaths, and so they went there and they found some women that were there praying, people who feared God. And Paul presented the gospel to them, and one of the women there was Lydia from Thyatira. And this shows you what our role is. And God had predestined, foreknew and predestined to save Lydia. It was a done deal. But because Paul was willing and able and available to God, God sent him to Philippi. And he preached the gospel to Lydia. And look what happens in in chapter 16 of Acts. Make sure I'm in the right book here. Yeah, verse uh, uh, 13, we'll start there. On the Sabbath day when when we went outside the city by the river, where we thought there was a place of prayer, we sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, she was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. This illustrates our role in what God is doing, in intervening in the lives of the natural man. Finally, we're going to look in our last part here, the Holy Spirit. The most important person in this last part of this passage. We find out that what we understand has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. We'll begin reading in 10 to the end of the chapter. Now God has revealed to them, to us, by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God, For who among men knows the concerns of a man except the spirit of a man that's in him? In the same way, no one knows the concerns of God except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, in order to know what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the natural man does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to know it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything. Yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone for who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Paul is making the point that None of us can know the thoughts of another person. 
if I'm acting out in a certain way, you can see that I'm mad or I'm happy or whatever, but when it comes right down to it, my brain is very complex, and so is yours. I'm not bragging on myself. I'm just saying our brains are complex, and we have multiple thoughts all of the time. And we have motives and the way we're analyzing things, things that are kind of driving us in directions and our thoughts. And, you know, you can look at me and you can do your best, but at the end of the day, I'm the only one who really knows what my thoughts are. And that's what Paul's point is, is that none of us can look at each other and know our thoughts. And so none of us can look at God and know His thoughts. The only one who can know God's thoughts is God. And so what is this passage telling us? Who is it that can understand God's thoughts? The Holy Spirit. So this is testifying to the deity of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And because we have received Christ and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, verse 12 explains it. That's why we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. But the natural man does not understand. He can't. He's not even able to. Because it's spiritually discerned. We talked about how a natural man sees himself as good and capable of attaining God's favor. Uh, the natural man's life is, is dominated by pride. And so Paul's point here is that, you know, you guys are viewed as being unremarkable people, that the gospel's stupid and you're stupid for believing it, and that I'm, I'm worthless and of no value because I don't fit into the category of a good speaker. He's saying... A natural man is in no position to evaluate God. He is in no position to evaluate the gospel. And a natural man is in no position to evaluate you. Two closing thoughts. Number one, the gospel is not foolish, it's God's wisdom. We believe the gospel. We know it is not foolish. But it's foolish to the natural man because they can't see. Now, our faith is not blind. You know, uh, uh, just some things. Uh, fulfilled Bible prophecy. I mean, in Daniel it talks about, you know, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. I mean predicts it. There's, there's, a, there's a tons. There's tons and tons and tons of Bible prophecy fulfilled. You know, this is a book that was written over 1,500 years and you can see when this was written and then when this was fulfilled, this was written and when this was fulfilled. The Bible is full of fulfilled Bible prophecy. The way the world looks. The flood explains to you and I why the world looks like it does today. The Bible itself proves through progressive revelation that there's one author, that one person wrote this entire book. And this person has apparently lived for 1,500 years because that's about the amount of time it took for this entire Bible to be written. That proves that God is the author. Creation is designed 
And so these are things that we would call evidence. We would say that this is logic. It's logical. But evidence and logic is not going to convert anybody. God has to intervene. And so that brings me to my second closing point, which is that we are commanded to witness. God has chosen us in His decision to rescue those He has called. Romans 10.14 says, How can they believe without hearing about Him? And so God expects us to participate in what He's doing. We get to participate. Um, Operation Christmas Child is a... We we don't even know what's going to happen in these boxes. But we're going to meet those people in heaven. We're going to meet the kids that uh, receive Christ. And we'll meet their mom, their brothers and sisters, and their parents. We absolutely know it's true. I mean, we've seen videos of entire families coming to know Christ through that shoebox. Entire families. And so we get to participate in what God's doing. He wants to use us. How can they believe without hearing about Him? And so what God asks you and I to do is to humbly follow, humbly follow Paul's example. Just a simple, straightforward presentation of the Gospel and letting Him do the rest. Let's pray.